real legit setup in here. Oh, everything, everything's top notch here, man. <laughs> first class. First class. First These class. mics are like twenty five hundred each. I have no doubt about that. Mm -hmm. I don't. There's a minus twenty four hundred. No, oh. actually, minus like twenty four fifty. Oh wow. Okay. So, yeah. but it was like a it was like a Black Friday type of thing. Right? It was like, it was more like a yeah. I stole them. But uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> no, they're like twenty five bucks each. Honestly, it's I th I think the audio is good. Have you have you listened, Matt? I have absolutely. What do you think I'm, of the audio? I'm I'm the I'm the sixth, uh, sixth viewer man. from sixth that. God. From, yeah, yeah. You're from, sixth God. <laughs> from the uh, podcast with Stu. I know you're saying you had six viewers or something like that. Mm -hmm. It's your mom. I think two of them were his mom or your parents. My parents. You guys. Yeah, and I keep refreshing the YouTube page to get more views. Oh, that's smart. You just keep it on like yeah, a just keep it on yeah, <laughs> keep it on a constant refresh. But uh, dude, thanks for doing this. I'm fired up to do this podcast. Absolutely. Uh, before we get into any questions, I gotta say like I'm gonna get this out of the way. I don't know anything about baseball and when i say anything i mean like nothing so but i'm trying my best to learn about it because it's honestly like such a sick sport and uh i thought that would be a great idea to have you on like who's you know who am i gonna learn from but the goat himself. <laughs> uh but before we get into any questions tell us a bit about your baseball career where you played and all that sure man yeah so uh uh growing up in bradford ontario uh halfway to barry shout Isn't out to that, bradford uh, uh, Justin Bieber's hometown? No, that's Brantford. That's, uh, oh, that's, that's a, a common that's mistake, a common, isn't it? You always get mistake. that, don't yeah. you? <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's all right. So uh, I played in Oakville for the Oakville Royals for a little bit, just like elite baseball, my uh, senior year and junior year of baseball, uh, high school baseball. And then I went off to the States in North Dakota, small town, Jamestown, North Dakota. Played there for four years. Had an absolute blast. Got some pretty crazy stories and made some pretty good I've friends. I've heard those stories. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I wish the listeners could hear some of those stories, man. They're insane. We'll have to do like a like an explicit cut episode or something like that. We where, can we can have this one be the explicit cut. I'm into it. I'm yeah. into it. Um, so yeah, I did that for four years, and then I've also played um, in the intercounty league here in Ontario. I think this is my third or fourth year. Like one year I was playing mm -hmm. junior and IBL and just kind of like sat on the bench, caught a bunch of bullpens type of thing. Nice. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you were just telling me before we started uh, recording about the league you play in right now. So it's like a semi-pro kind of thing? Yeah, it's like it's semi-pro or amateur. I don't, I don't know how they classify it, but yeah. it's uh, this is the 100th year of the league, actually. It's been around for 100 years. Mm. So um, I guess 1918 was the first year. And uh, there was like an original six team uh six teams or five teams or something like that do you uh, play in the nhl is that what you're saying yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> yeah <laughs> um but uh actually the toronto maple leafs like the baseball team were called the maple leafs before like the hockey team were called that oh so, actually yeah that's one of the teams in the league they play mm. out of christy pitts hmm. well i so. guess the leafs were called like the sand paths before right yeah exactly so i don't know how they just like walked in and stole the name or something like that I mean, they but... can do whatever they want exactly. Toronto it's hockey <laughs> exactly yeah, yeah. But that's, that's pretty cool. So tell us about like the work you're doing right now in sports science. You're with Nick, right? Who was on the first episode of the, of yeah. the podcast. Yeah. Yep. Nick's, Nick's my supervisor. Um, and I'm doing, I'm kind of incorporating like the sports side of my background with the science side that I've always kind of taken. I took mm -hmm. biology from my undergrad, but I've always been really interested in metrics and, and sports science. So what I'm doing is looking at uh, baseball players and specifically like the warm-up drills that they're doing yeah and how it's affecting their in-game performance mm -hmm. uh warm-up only a warm-up like before the game or practice in general uh so in baseball like there's a uh, quite a bit of warm-up drills that you use in practice anyways yeah. so before games depending on the type of resources that you have 
maybe you're hitting off of a tee or a coach is throwing batting practice to you. Um, so it really just depends on the resources, but these drills that we're specifically looking at are used in warm up and in practice. Yeah. Those, there's like T work, right. And then the pitching machine and then the batting practice with the coach. Exactly. Uh, what you're studying is like how relevant these are to in-game performance and the, like in competition, right? Exactly. How, how representative they are of, of facing an actual mm-hmm. pitcher. Is it from like a, like from a gaze behavior type of thing? Like, uh, actually, let's explain what gaze behavior is. Sure, yeah. So, obviously, a huge part of baseball is the vision and using your eyes to, you know, figure out when the ball is going to be delivered, yeah. where it's going to be thrown. Specifically, what we're going to look at is is we have these, like, really cool um, eye trackers or eye tracker. Mm-hmm. And uh, we can look at the quiet eye or how long you're looking at uh, something, how um, the specific... Uh, cues that you might be looking at so that's that's pretty much what gaze behavior is is just just how long you're looking at something um where your eyes shift to while you're doing that and uh yeah how long like basically how long it takes you to to cue in on a target that you're trying to look at so we'll be looking at with baseball players so uh but pros or elite players have a better ability to track objects right than uh than novices or less elite players which i guess makes sense it's not like a you know Right. Um, but uh, but what's more most interesting is how they actually track it, the leads. So like on a on a pitcher, if you're a batter and you're looking at the pitcher, what cues are you actually looking at? Like what are you trying to pick up? Oh, there's tons. Um, so just kind of like a side note, there's been a lot of research done on baseball players, and they found that uh, like the majority of them have 10-20 vision. So what you see at 20 feet, they can see it. Or what you see at 10 feet, they see at 20 feet. So they've got better than 20-20 vision, the vast huh. majority of them. Um, but what they're looking at is so many things. Like a, a big part of baseball is being able to pick up tells. So how long um, the pitcher holds the ball in his glove. Or maybe he starts to drop his back shoulder when he's throwing a certain pitch. You kind mm-hmm. of pick up on subtle tendencies. But the majority of the time, you're just trying to get your eyes to the release point of the pitcher. They all have different release points or funky deliveries. And you're trying to figure out where that release point's going to be. Yeah. So as soon as they release it, you kind of get a head start on tracking the ball. So is that why? So I was looking up some some baseball uh, clips and stuff like that, just preparing for the episode, and uh, I came across Luis Luis Severino 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 yeah. Severino. yeah. Yeah. So is that why? Is that what makes him so good? Is because he hides the ball and he hides all the cues when he's when he's throwing. Exactly. Yeah. He's he's got a, a pretty funny delivery. Uh, it helps that he throws like. I think he's mid nineties or upper nineties. So like he's got course, a pretty yeah. overpowering fastball with like a really good slider. So he uses those two together. It's called tunneling, like releasing the fastball down the middle um, and then releasing the slider in the exact same spot. And then the hitter has to guess basically, okay, is this ball going to end up on like the inner half of the plate or is it going to be a ball like outside of the zone? Yeah. But depending on the fastball or slider, but yeah, he hides the ball behind his body for a really long time. And then at the last possible second, when he's planting his foot, then his arm comes around and then that's how he delivers it. Mm. Um, certain guys, they may be able to throw like 105 or 106, but um, their release point is easy to pick up. So that's why these major league hitters can still hit him. But then you also see pitchers in the majors that throw you know, upper 80s or low 90s, and they have really funny deliveries, and it's really hard to, to figure out where they're going to let it go from, and maybe they change their arm angle, like, pretty often. So when you say funny deliveries, like, how? Like, they're just trying to uh, deceive the batter, or they're trying to, like, hide their cues, and... 
Yeah. So hide uh, the ball. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, it's it's kind of something that coaches for a long time might have prescribed like a certain type of mechanics, mm-hmm. saying like you should throw it right over the top every single time. And then I think it's starting. They're starting to realize in recent years like it helps to have maybe instead of being right over the top every single time you throw the ball. Maybe the next time, instead of being right here, like over the top, you drop it down to like three quarters or you go submarine. That's why you see some guys throw like submarine pitches too, because it's just something that these hitters have never seen. Mm. And uh, Marcus Stroman on the Blue Jays, he likes to vary how long he holds the ball for. And like maybe he'll pause at the top of his thing. Maybe he'll start his delivery and then hold back on his back foot. And then sometimes he'll look like he's going to go really slow and then deliver it really quick. It's called a quick pitch. Mm-hmm. And you're just trying to mess with the timing. So that's like another way you can kind of release the ball in different ways and totally throw off a hitter's timing. So all you're trying to do is like F with the with the batter. Exactly. Yeah, it's just a mind game the entire time. Like it's just a, it really is a chess match between the pitcher and the hitter. The that's what I noticed about baseball is like as a someone who's like just started to get into baseball, there's uh, there's more science behind it, I feel like, than any... You know, they call boxing the sweet science, but I feel like this is... From a from a scientific perspective, like this has so many cool uh, cool things to look at, so many cool features. Baseball is like full of nerds. Uh, yeah, like, exactly. Like, it's like, the sport of nerds. Yeah, it really is. The data analytics is unbelievable, and sometimes there's just too many metrics, like too many things to look at. Mm-hmm. And I think it can be exhausting sometimes to look at it all. But yeah, people love numbers in baseball for sure. So if you're if you're a batter, like uh, no, sorry, if you were trying to tell a batter what cues to pick up on while looking at the picture, where would you tell them to, to look? Um, so one of the traditional ways is, is when you're on deck, like when you're about to go up to the plate, mm-hmm. you really have to utilize that time to get your timing down. So maybe you're trying to sync up when you when to move your front foot with how they're releasing it. But you really should be looking at, okay, does this guy release it from over the top? Does he release it from three quarters? Is he a submarine type of pitcher, like from underneath the like halfway plane of their arm? Mm-hmm. Um, but you have to really utilize like those warm up pitches or, uh, maybe you have film on, on the pitcher and that's what you're looking for. You're trying to figure out exactly where that, how long he normally holds the ball and exactly where he's going to let it go from. Mm-hmm. That's going to give you like a huge advantage. So in your work that you're doing right now, are you comparing the efficacy of T work, pitching machine and, and coaching, uh, or batting practice? Yeah. Like regular batting practice? More or less. I, I mean, uh, I think that's one thing that I was going into my master's thinking like, oh, we're going to disprove one of these drills or, or this this way is better than the other way. Mm-hmm. But really, yeah, we just want to see the efficacy of it. We want to see how they stack up, how they prepare you for a game. Um, some of them may be more representative. Some of them may be less representative, but they might have diff- different roles in, in your warm up routine. Mm-hmm. And we just want to see really how it is affecting your gaze behavior in an acute manner. So they pretty much all have pros and cons, but none of them are really that relevant to in-game competition or what would yeah. you say? Yeah. So definitely differing degrees. So like if, if you're hitting off of a tee, mm-hmm. your head's stationary, you're looking at the ball the entire time. Um, a ball's not coming towards you at all and you can start whenever you want to try and hit it. So, I mean, there's nothing really there that's game. Like it's, it, it's been treated as something like just as a warm up to get your muscles and tendons and ligaments loose. Um, and then if you're facing a pitching machine, you kind of lose all the cues of a traditional pitcher, like someone's arm actually following through their shoulders turning. And then there's also the velocity thing. So a pitching machine can be used to match velocities that you're going to see in a game, but the hitter doesn't really necessarily know exactly when it's going to be released. So it could throw off their timing. 
And then there's coach throw and batting practice, which I would argue is probably most game-like in the sense that, you know, there's actually another human throwing the ball towards you and you can see their movements, but it's traditionally thrown from like 30 or 45 feet away where a mound is 60 feet, six inches mm-hmm. and with a lot less velocity. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's, it's more game-like in the sense that you get the cues, but not in the ball coming towards you at, at a game-like speed. So what do you think? Do you think there's a, in the future, there's something to be done where you can get the best of both worlds of, of a pitching machine in terms of velocity and a, a coach or live body throwing a, a yeah. ball at you? Like it, so the, a lot of teams have actually started to do that. They, they'll have a projector and they'll have like a computer simulation and it'll project a pitcher on the screen and there's a hole in the screen. And then the pitcher goes to deliver the pitch. And then as their ball, like as their hand comes to where that hole is, the ball is let go from a pitching machine behind the screen. And it comes at like 95 miles an hour. And it's pretty oh, game. Wow. Like. Yeah, yeah. Is that, is that like, do all MLB teams have that? I would assume the majority of them are at least looking into the technology, but I know some of the teams that are really um, science driven and analytic driven, like the Houston Astros are a huge team for that. Mm. I'm sure they have those types of facilities available to them. Hmm. Yeah, that's super cool. I never thought about like uh, yeah. simulations and uh, especially with the hole in the in the thing. Like that's, yeah, that's, that's going to give you the best of both worlds. That's, that's right. amazing. So right now the, the technology is kind of like there's a generic pitcher throwing a ball in those simulations. But you could think the way that technology is advancing, you could probably say, say you're facing a pitcher the next day and you know who that pitcher is going to be. You could like import their kinematics or something into some program. And then that pitcher would be throwing you the simulations before the game and get you like super prepared for who you're facing. Right. So instead of just doing film, yeah, you're doing actual, like almost real life practice. Yeah. Like using film, very representative, very game like, um, which is the optimal learning condition. Yeah. That's super interesting. Yeah. Um, so, have you have you found anything yet or you're you still in the process of kind of developing the study design and all that right exactly yeah so we're, we're actually just submitting for ethics mm-hmm. uh like asap nick if you're watching sorry man i'm working on it after i swear <laughs> nick we're busy <laughs> yeah what do you want wait I, I got invited to a big time podcast yeah i don't have time to uh to work on some peasant ethics you know? <laughs> <laughs> um but you work on that, nick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. email me once that's done how about that <laughs> Uh, yeah, so so I'm just uh, submitting ethics and then uh, the data collection process, like the actual study that we're doing, will probably get done uh, near the end of summer. So you have, uh, can you can we discuss that? Like the, the sample size and... Yeah, I, we can discuss the sample size. Can't really discuss like yeah, my yeah. hypothesis because mm-hmm. I don't want to like bias anything. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we're, we're, we're going to be taking elite baseball players. So guys that will play in, you know, the inter-county league that I play in or have college experience or even pro experience. Mm-hmm. And then we'll balance them um, depending on their age and their experience into uh, different groups. Mm-hmm. And we'll have them face like a simulation. And see how relevant that would be to their in-game competition. Like you're going to track their, their stats later on. And their... But that would be really nice. Um, the but problem that, that is... takes a long time. Yeah, it takes a long time. And it's, it's that's probably more of like a PhD type of project. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, I, I think for now we're, we're going to do, cause the, the, the main thing we're looking at is the gaze behavior. We want to see how it affects that. Uh, but it definitely opens the door for studies like that, mm-hmm. uh, later on. So when I was reading, uh, some of the studies on gaze behavior, one of the most interesting concepts is the quiet eye. Mm. I don't know much about it, to be honest. I, all I know is like the term quiet eye. Can you explain that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So pretty much what it is, is 
the time right before you perform a movement, there's this concept called the quiet eye in that you focus in on the target. I think it's something like 100 milliseconds or 150 milliseconds. The definitions have been kind of fluid. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's your the last time you focus on that before you start a movement is your quiet eye. And supposedly, if you like expert players that start their quiet eye earlier and for longer durations, that's what makes them experts. Like they're better able to hit a golf putt if they're staring at the golf ball for a longer amount of time than if they were to not stare at it. Or if you're throwing a dart, if you're looking right at the target, right before you initiate the like toss of the dart, yeah. you stare for, let's say it's like 300 milliseconds, but you initiate that like 150 milliseconds before you throw, then uh, that's like your quiet eye. Basically, that's, that's what I do before I hack a dart. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so like lining up the smoke and the, the smoke the lighter with, the, with and the lighter. Okay. Yeah. What, in wind conditions, how do you uh, how do you deal with that? Like you turn it upside down, or you usually get a friend to kind of like provide oh, some some support or anything. Yeah. You outsource for that. I outsource for that. Yeah, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> um. So yeah. So in, in in basic terms, like a baseball or a basketball player throwing a free throw, so they're staring at the target. And we're talking milliseconds, right? We're not talking like staring at it for seconds. It's it's all in milliseconds, right? Exactly. Yeah. So I mean, it'd be pretty funny if like Curry's up there, like just I don't know, like taking a pause. Yeah, yeah. Or like you know those like frat boys at like a, a pong tournament or something like that, where they're like focusing in oh, on yeah. one cop, like they're trying to channel their quiet eye. But yeah, no, it's 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 milliseconds. So it could be staring at the back of the rim or the front of the rim. Mm-hmm. But they all have like a pre-shot routine. So they'll do like two dribbles, spin the ball. And then right before they go to start the movement, they'll focus on whatever their target may be. The back of the rim, front of the rim, side of the rim. And then they shoot the ball. That's the quiet eye. And so the interesting thing about it is how to prolong the quiet eye. So the more you prolong it, the better your performance is, right? So is that just a matter of like keeping your eye on the target yeah so it, it's and that's the thing about quiet eye you have to be fixated on the target so you might think that you're doing quiet eye but mm-hmm. until you have like eye tracker on on your actual eyes seeing where what you're looking at you may be shifting from the back of the rim to the front of the rim not actually performing quiet eye you're not focusing in on one target oh yeah because you might think that the target is like this is small like it's just the rim but there's different angles and different parts that you might be focusing on right um and i'm, I'm sure like anyone thinking back like on it, it's like oh yeah that's what i do i focus in on that one target but until mm-hmm. you see your eyes doing it you might be moving your eyes around not actually looking at, at right. one specific place because there's an infinite number of points that you can be focusing on exactly the... exactly but so okay that's easy to do in basketball well, not easy but i mean it's easier than baseball because in baseball i mean how many how many milliseconds do you have until the ball reaches you from the mound it's uh like on a 96 mile an hour fastball there's 400 milliseconds so so you're not you can't look at shit yeah no you can't you can't look at anything because it takes um you have to decide at 200 i think it's 250 milliseconds you have to decide if you're going to swing or not swing like after they've released the ball because it takes your to send the signal to your arms to swing it takes 150 milliseconds wait how much time do you have for you to decide so for the for the pitch to get to the plate, it's 400 milliseconds. Yeah. For you to decide, you have to do it by the 250 millisecond point. Okay. Because I think after like 75 or 100 milliseconds, that's when you just realize like, oh shit, there's a ball coming towards me. Yeah. That's the, you can't do anything. And then from that like 75 or 100 milliseconds to the 250 millisecond point, then you have to figure out what type of pitch this is, where is it going to end up, how fast is it going. 
And then at 250 milliseconds, it's like, okay, start the swing or don't start the swing. Because once you cross that, you won't be able to catch up to it. That's insane. Yeah, it's nuts. It, it really is. I, th- I personally think the hardest thing to do in sports, but there's been a lot of research suggesting that it is like one of the hardest tasks to do in sports. Yeah, I mean, the numbers speak for themselves. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you think about it, I think it takes 400 milliseconds just to blink. Mm-hmm. So literally, if, if you timed your blink so that you close your eyes right when the pitcher releases it, you won't see it hit the glove. Like you'll just, you open your eyes. You'll literally and miss it if you blink. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's insane. Um, going back to boxing and MMA, I think that's, if, if not, uh, if not the most scientific sport, that it's got to be baseball in terms of even reaction times too. Because if you think of it like a right hook coming at you, you don't have that much time to react to it either. And that's the thing about boxing and MMA. Like those guys are so tired when like the, the second yeah. round and you're making split second decisions, yeah. like should I, you know, punch or kick or right hook or left hook or, or whatever it might be. I, I don't know how they do that. Cause I mean, baseball, it is pretty nice. Like you're not necessarily sprinting all the time no. or doing like all this, like you're chewing tobacco. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're chewing tobacco, spitting seeds, doing whatever. Um, but like when you're, physically and mentally exhausted like a mm-hmm. boxing match i can't imagine trying to make those judgment calls or reacting like well that. not only are you are you tired by the second round you're also dehydrated as hell from cutting weight yes. so you're draining your your brain of of water exactly you're draining your whole body of water like your action time is shot your your whole your i don't know your your stamina is not as good uh, everything you can do while you're hydrated is essentially depleted when you're when you're competing in the ring so it's it's, it's insane um have you heard of what happened recently you, uh, do you follow the mma or ufc or oh yeah all? yeah I, I follow it i'm not like a yeah. crazy intense fan but i, I yeah love all sports so, so I they implemented early weigh-ins which is at 10 a.m you do it 10 a.m then the day before the competition okay. uh and fighters seem to love it right because it gives you more time to hydrate by the time you get into the octagon Right. So now they want to get rid of that. Now they want to bring it back to 8 p.m. the night before. Oh, so, wow. so that means you have 24 hours, maybe less, depending on where you're actually fighting, to rehydrate. Because fighters have started to miss weight more after the early weigh-ins have been implemented. I see. So, but, but that's what I don't really understand. Like, what is the point of, of, the, of the 8 p.m. weigh-in? Like, are they worried, like, why would they move it back? Are they worried that guys are going to put on like five pounds or 10 pounds and give them a huge advantage? Or is it, are they just really trying to? Well, more, so I don't think they know why more fighters have started missing weight now that they've implemented uh, early weigh-ins. So it's only been two years since I've implemented it. Before that at 8 p.m., I think like during two years or something like that, 30 fighters missed weight in those two Mm. years. After the uh, the 8 a.m. weigh-ins, 62 have missed weight. Oh, wow. And so because of those numbers, they want to bring it back to 8 p.m. Oh, I see. Okay, okay. But uh, I, you're right. That's that's a huge advantage for the fighters. Like the 8 a.m. weigh-ins, just for their health, it makes way more sense to do it. Way more sense. Yeah, like with, with a lot of time. And then those guys that are missing weight, I really don't think... Unprofessional. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't think that's a 12-hour difference that it, it, you just weren't prepared. Like it's, it's... And, and like I'm, not, I'm in no position to kind of you know, call professional fighters unprofessional. But, <laughs> but honestly, listen, if you sign a contract two months in advance and you miss weight, an extra 12 hours, like, that shouldn't even be in consideration to help you. You signed a contract two months ago. That's when you start your, your weight cut. Not necessarily in terms of cutting water, 
but in terms of shedding body weight. You right. shed it over time, and then you do your major weight cut a couple of days before. Right. So, yeah, yeah, no, that's that's just that's exactly it's part of the contract. You are a pro fighter. You get paid tons of money. A lot of people come to to watch you do this. Yeah. You're you're an entertainer. The and that that's your job. Make mm-hmm. your weight and fight the way that you want to fight. Yeah. Like it's it's just there's there's two parts about it, and uh, I I think just kind of pushing back the the weigh in time will not make a difference as far as who's going to make weight and who's not going to make weight because yeah. they're professionals like they have professional trainers professional staff helping nutritionists them out. yeah i mean honestly not all of them because some people in the ufc are actually making terrible money who can't afford uh nutritionists and all that but i don't know i don't know if these are the fighters that are necessarily missing weight right yeah and that, that might be similar to like college football players who are making no money and they don't have like like uh certain resources available to them depending on like what schools are going to Mm -hmm. but at the end of the day like the school's paying you money or the league is paying you money or uh in this case like a contract is paying you money to fight yeah and this could be your opportunity so i mean the 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 timing of the weight cut just that that should be insignificant Uh, speaking of uh ncaa and all that what's your stance on whether ncaa's uh athletes should be paid or not I, I absolutely think they, they should be. Mm-hmm. Um, listen, like college football in the States is a whole different animal. Like we, yeah. in Canada, it's it's not so easy to think of, but like Texas high school football games, they sell it like 25,000 like 25, people go to that. Like That's more than a Leafs game. Yeah, there's like hardcore alumni for all of those. They love football in the States. It's just how they are. So if you go to Michigan, who's got the big house at 110,000 people, I think they can see to Michigan or uh, Alabama, you know, the huge schools, and they have tons of fans showing up over a hundred thousand. And then plus the millions of people that are watching um, mm. on TV. And then these athletes are getting paid. So maybe tuition at Michigan is let's say $25,000 a year. And some of these guys get full rides, which is definitely not the case for the entire team. True. Um, so you're telling me that $100,000 over four years is suffice to satisfy these millions and millions and millions of viewers. And then these kids, yeah, they have nutritionists available to them. They have um, excellent trainers. They might have uh, ISTs, like integrated sports teams, helping them out. But at the end of the day, they still go home and they have to eat ramen noodles or craft dinner or See, peanut they don't get sandwiches. food provided to them, do they? Some of them, it depends if you live on campus, if you live off campus, some of them have food plans where they monitor everything that you eat, but mm. not every school is Alabama, not every school is USC and, right. and these schools have to compete against those teams. So the other D1 programs. So these guys should be paid way more money. Um, they should get a cut of the revenue. I don't know. I don't know how you go about implementing that. Um, but maybe it's like a performance based thing. Maybe it's, maybe it's just, you sign a contract to play there and then you can't leave for the draft but you are able to make this much money because that's why that's the whole reason people leave like those big D one programs to go to the draft is okay. Like I need to make some money now. Yeah, like I need to make a living. Money. Yeah. Um, and so your body's yeah. not going to hold up forever. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, especially in football. Like well, Exactly. Especially in football. Like you're getting your head bashed every single day. Yeah. And you're not making a single penny. You think of running back, like those guys, I don't know how many times are tackled the game, but if they run the ball 30 times, the majority of the time they get tackled by one or two guys mm-hmm. and then they're blocking like it's just so hard on the body that's insane not to mention the the tv rights they sell too how much money they're making off tv rights um merchandise merchandise yeah not even not even the ticket sales yeah yeah no it's it's uh, you have such a 
such a huge group of fans because maybe you have like 50,000 people going to the school at once, like in UCLA or, mm -hmm. or Michigan, like, you know, just so many students, those people all become lifetime fans and then yeah. they move countries and stuff like that, but they're still buying the merchandise, still yeah. watching the games, all of that stuff. That's crazy. Did you, uh, so what uh, division did you play in? in so, baseball? so the league that Jamestown is, it's NAIA. Um, and basically, so there's, there's NCAA D1, D2, D3, and then there's NAIA as well. Um, NAIA is known for like pretty good academic schools, mm -hmm. but also a lot of smaller schools like in the Midwest, um, or in not like really populous places. And they're trying to, they're trying to build up the community of certain sports in the NAIA, like NAIA football compared to NCAA football, it definitely doesn't stack up, mm -hmm. but like sports like baseball or even hockey or the women's sports in the NAIA are like really good, um, um, really good. So basically what, what they're trying to do is, is build up the athletic system for the NAI, but what they're leaning on is, is we want people that are pretty academic because they give a lot of academic money in NAI. Um, and they, they focus a little bit more on, on the school side of things. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So you get, an, you, you get a solid education and you also get to play at a high level. Exactly. And I, I mean, we played against D1s at Jamestown all the time. You play against really good schools mm -hmm. and uh yeah like you see see really good athletes and also what happens in nai is someone goes to a big d1 school and for some reason they can't keep their marks up or they screw off or mm -hmm. you know they they uh get kicked off the team they'll usually go to a really good nai school and play for them as well to either build their stock back up or or to start every day mm -hmm. so it's more almost like a farm yeah farm yeah league yeah it, it is it's kind of like a farm league um, but the big powerhouse, like NAI schools are, mm -hmm. are doing a really good job of keeping up with these D one programs. And especially in baseball, like I see like eye popping numbers in the NAI, in the NAIA, like there's a certain hitter, um, Kiki something. He was, uh, like the NAIA player of the year in baseball and he actually didn't get drafted. And it's, it's a big bone of contention in the community because then there's guys like there's 40 rounds in the, in the MLB draft and there's. 30 teams so there's so many picks and then like the 38th round 39th round like maybe they're drafting like quarterbacks that they know are, aren't going to sign or they're drafting like 35 year old guys that they know they aren't going to yeah. sign instead of taking chances on like a 22 year old kid that just tore it up in the in in this league mm. that's so, a shame yeah. so okay going back to baseball and, and tracking eye movements um we just went on like a 20 minute tangent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what? Uh, um so what's the problem with using an eye tracker to study baseball like what limitations does that have yes the, the, actually sorry sorry to interrupt uh, no. let's let's explain what an eye tracker is because you know a lot about it you work with them yeah can you, can you explain a bit what what an eye tracker is and what it does for sure so i can start by describing the one that we have in our lab basically it looks like like something you'd wear to the movies like those 3d goggles and it's got two cameras on the inside of the tracker that are looking right at your retina and they lock on and they're following your eye movements. And then it's got an external camera that looks out at what you're looking at. And then it's got a cord that kind of comes off the arms and connects to like a phone or an iPad. And then on that phone, I can see exactly what you're looking at. So depending where you're looking on the screen, I, so say we're both looking at this wall over here, I see that wall and then there's a little green dot that tracks your eyes everywhere that it's going. And so I can see that. And then once we're done with the study, like I'll press record, I take that and I plug it into a software program and import everything you were just looking at 
as far as like fine eye movements, like saccadic eye movements, um, a variety of things. And saccadic eye movements are just basically ballistic movements of the eye. So you, you have, you're looking at something and then you jump, basically you jump your eyes in a certain direction. Mm. Like quick shifts. And- yeah. Yeah. Like quick shifts, like as opposed to like a, like a lazy trail of your eyes going, it's uh-huh. like kind of choppy, like it jumps to the next places when you're trying to predict where something's going yeah. to be. So, so when you're, so the baseball batters, you're, you're using batters, right? And you're, yeah, yeah, we'll be using batters. So what's the limitation of using an eye tracker? Does it kind of alarm the, the athletes? Like, wait, I'm in the study. Like I got this eye tracker. They're kind of distracted by the fact that they have an eye tracker on or no, you don't it, think that's a, it, it shouldn't be, but I mean, that's definitely something you have to consider yeah. if someone doesn't wear glasses or if someone never has that on very often, it, it would definitely throw them off. Yeah. And it kind of is like a constant reminder that you you're in a study, something's going on and it's not something that you may be used to, mm-hmm. but it's something they've done a really good job of developing the technology before. Whereas before it used to be like these huge helmets that you'd have to wear and you could only use it for stationary studies, looking at like a computer screen and it was like 40 pounds or something sitting on your head, like a football helmet. Jesus. Now it's like, they're literally like prescription glasses or, or movie they glasses. They weigh nothing. Yeah. I picked it, them up before I had the lab. Yeah, exactly. So so I think that's becoming less and less. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think it's just something like once you get into the swing of the study, you kind of forget that you do have them on. Uh-huh. So, okay. So we've agreed that uh, perception, so like perceiving the ball coming at you and then timing that with your action are, are important. Um, so are practices and, and warm-ups not helping in that? Do you think the traditional way it's been done is not helping with perception and action. Yeah, um, one of the so perception and action coupling is a huge part of my study, and really what that means is it's a pairing of information and movement. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to hit a tennis ball, it's you pairing the visual of a tennis ball traveling towards you with the movement of swinging and hitting it. So in baseball, the batters pair the movement of their front foot with the release of uh or with the uh, movement of the pitcher's arm and the release of the ball mm-hmm. so they're trying to pair that up that's a that's a perception action coupling and traditionally batting practice is thrown off that pairing so if you practice before a game let's say and in, in the the coach is throwing 60 miles an hour okay. and you time the movement of your foot with that velocity or like with that uh, pitcher releasing the ball then when you go in the game, your foot is going to be getting down way late and you're going to be late on every pitch. You're not going to mm-hmm. be able to catch up. Because there's a 30 mile an hour difference. Exactly. So that's been a big problem in the major leagues recently is because these guys are saying, well, why are we taking batting practice anymore? Is it for the fans? Like, are we just hitting home runs in the stands mm-hmm. before the game so they can get the ball? Like, is it really getting us prepared for the game? Right. So what a lot of them have been doing is taking the batting practice just because MLB mandates it and then going to the tunnels underneath and using a pitching machine or using a tee or something to, to get the, the timing back up to a, to a high velocity pitch. Oh, so MLB mandates it. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, you have to take batting practice. Like if, if it rains or um, if you've played like a number of day games in a row, then you, you're allowed to deny batting practice, but they'll find you if you, if you don't show up for batting Okay. Practice. So that gives you kind of an answer of why uh, batting practice is around. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's, and it is, it's an experience for fans. Like the hit balls there, yeah. it's, it's, amazing you see like aaron judge or these monsters right. hit huge home runs but i don't know does it really prepare you for is it really that relevant yeah that's questionable right exactly um so you sent me a lot of links about we're kind of going to shift topics here you sent me a lot of links about um spin rate mm. and velocity yeah so uh, if you're a batter 
how does the spin rate affect your perception of the ball? So it or might, does it at all? Yeah, it definitely does. It might not be something that you notice consciously, like, oh, this guy has a really high spin rate. That means this is going to happen. Yeah. But if someone's throwing a four-seam fastball, so a fastball that kind of spins end over end like this, the more spin rate that you have, the less it's going to drop as it's coming towards you. Mm-hmm. So there's hitters that say like, I swear that pitch rose. Like when I was looking at it, it, it rose up yeah. on me. Like I, I swung under it. It's not the case. It Bryce just, Harper says that. Yeah, he, he said he's like, I don't care what dumb researchers say. Like uh, they have never stepped in the box and faced 98. Yeah. Like he's a big time bro. <laughs> so. I'm on, honestly, I'm always, always, or almost always on the side of the athletes. Yeah. But okay, listen, dude, like you know way more about baseball than them, but they know way more about physics than you. Exactly. So how about you just listen? <laughs> yeah. So so because you've hit ten thousand baseballs in your life or a hundred thousand baseballs in your life doesn't mean that you that your observations defy. Also, physics. have you like, heard of optical illusion before? <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> come on, man. Um, but basically, a high spin rate. Just, also, come on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At Bryce Harper, we'll yeah. tag you. <laughs> um, the high spin rates sustains where it's going so if, if you've got a low spin rate the ball drops off and out of the zone mm-hmm. but if you've got a high spin rate it's going to stay on an even plane it's not going to drop as much mm-hmm. so that's why pitchers with high spin rates will throw up in the zone and a lot of guys will pop the ball straight up because they're swinging under it because they think it's going to drop a little bit more but they'll pop it up in the infield so because the ball is spinning it creates downforce and downforce creates an equal but opposite exactly yeah going up right so if there's a ball moving through the air yeah there's kind of uh, a wind that comes down and pushes it like forces it to go down but the backspin kind of counteracts that and and causes the ball to ride or like to to sustain to, to, to not drop like to to cut through the air but why does it not rise though and keep in mind i got a 52 in grade 12 physics so, <laughs> so i don't so i can't really like say much about it but why does it not rise it's it's the same idea as like a bullet spinning through the air. Like a bullet, if you knuckle a bullet, it's going to drop straight down. Yeah. But the way it spins, it cuts through the air and then creates this. Um, uh, think of like a car commercial. The way the air goes over the top of a car. You know, when they see the, like, yeah, the streamline yeah. over top of it. When it gets to the back of the car, that air is pushing down and forces whatever's cutting mm-hmm. through it to, to go down. If you can create spin, it only counterbalances that air. It, it can't. It can't overcome it. Overcome it. So a plane has wings to overcome it, mm-hmm. and like huge horsepower engines to be able to take off. But the actual wings is what cause it to lift. So like a baseball, I mean, it'd have to be like a golden snitch or something like that, yeah. like from Harry Potter <laughs> with 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 wings that would make it fly. Okay, that makes sense. So how does spin rate affect velocity? Does it? Um, it doesn't, and. Uh, they're trying to figure out how to change spin rate on certain pitchers and they haven't really been able to put their finger on how to do that. It just changes where the ball is going to end up. It doesn't change how hard it's necessarily going. Mm-hmm. So you can have two 94 miles an hour pitches, but with different spin rates. Yeah. So if, if you have a high spin rate, 94 mile an hour fastball, it's not going to drop as much. And if you have a low spin rate, 94 mile an hour fastball, it is going to drop. Mm-hmm. They're both valuable if you throw them in the right place. So if you throw a 94 mile an hour fastball with low spin rate, low in the zone, it's going to tail or drop out of the zone and the swing, the batter's going to swing over it. If you throw a high spin rate up in the zone, it's going to look like it's going to drop right into the barrel or right into the sweet spot Mm -hmm. and a batter will swing under it. But it's just using those spin rates to pitch properly. That's 
So uh, from what you sent me, I was looking at, and it says, spin is generated in only six milliseconds. Yeah. In the in the pitcher's hand. Mm-hmm. Like, how the fuck is that? <laughs> uh, it, yeah, it's a, definitely a good question. It, it's because, like, when they're releasing the ball, like, when they're bringing their, swinging their arm back, it actually has backspin as they're doing that. Mm-hmm. And then when you get to the peak, like, as you release a, a pitch, you really flick your wrist. So you mm-hmm. have to really pull down on it. And that momentum they create when they're stepping and turning their hips, that really helps like pull down on the ball and create that spin. So it's all how you're holding the ball and it's all how you basically flick at the end of your pitch. You can create that spin. So they're also saying that you, um, here, I'm going to read you. So it says some studies have shown that spin rate is an innate characteristic to each, each pitcher, but not across a large population of pitchers. Mm-hmm. So does that mean that spinning is an innate talent in yeah, then that's that's kind In of certain people. Uh, that that's kind of the problem. So you can, they haven't figured out how to change it for each pitcher. So they're kind of thinking maybe it's just something that you're naturally talented to be able to do. Like I have a really high spin rate. Mm-hmm. That's just something that happens. Like I I didn't change you just my mechanics. Flick your wrist better than anyone else. <laughs> no, but like that's just it's yeah. just something that naturally happens. Not something I've ever actively thought of doing. Uh-huh. Um, and if I wanted to throw a low spin rate, I couldn't, it's just, it's just the way that the ball goes. Um, but yeah, I guess it would be like an innate talent or something that's, that's naturally gifted to these athletes. Mm. And so what about those methods that have, uh, or I guess those myths that, you know, people can teach or some coaches can teach pitchers how to throw, uh, pitches with, with more, uh, spins and all that is that just bs yeah it's it's a myth so far i mean there's been no breakthrough like oh if you hold the ball like with your fingers three inches apart and Mm -hmm. on this part of the ball you'll be able to create more spin Mm -hmm. but there was kind of like a controversy in baseball so the astros this year have been phenomenal at pitching yeah and people have noticed that their spin rates have increased by like 200 rpm which is a huge jump and trevor bauer who's one of these like really analytically driven pitchers was like i don't know I, like doesn't make sense to me and basically it was very sarcastic and like yeah i wonder how they could possibly do that we have no idea when there's been a study in seattle saying that if you use pine tar like the sticky substance you use to hold onto a bat mm-hmm. you can create more spin which makes sense because you'll stick to the ball for a little bit longer and then you can create more okay. spin but you can't you can't create spin naturally you can't do it legally with legally with certain substances you can right and you can't tie that unless the Unless you use some substance that's clear. Yeah. So that, that I'm just I'll, thinking of ways to, to cheat. Oh yeah, for sure. And majors are some rules they really enforce, some they don't. They like the pitchers throw hard and they get high strikeout rates. They mm-hmm. like home runs the most, so they'll do anything to make sure that there's more home runs. Um, but pitchers will put Vaseline on the end of their cap, or they'll use the rosin bag on the back of the mound, um, and they'll pair it with water, and it creates this like really sticky like substance that you can use. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not supposed to be like that, but it happens for sure. Like Michael Pineda on the Yankees, I think like three years ago, he put like pine tar on his neck and he's a darker guy. So it, like it, you couldn't really tell, uh-huh. but then everyone's like, why is this guy touching his neck? Like before every single pitch and the umpire right. walked out, touched it. He's like, that's pine tar. Like you're, you're out. He oh, kicked no him way. out of the game. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's 2018. He should have just played the, the race card and got it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> um, so, okay. I got I got some questions for you from my friends. Cool. Uh, it's a segment called Tony's Questions. Tony's Questions. Right? Yeah. So, do you think this is this is from Sean, Sean, who was actually on the podcast last uh, last episode? Gotcha. 
Do you think PED users should be in the Hall of Fame? Yes. Why? Because certain PED users at that time were doing it with everybody else. The pitchers they were hitting the home runs off of or the other hitters that they were striking out were all using PEDs. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of that like Lance Armstrong debate. Like everybody was doing it. Everybody knew everybody was doing it, but there were no rules implemented at that time. Like they got implemented after. Mm -hmm. So maybe you started in college or maybe you started um, in the major leagues before they really cracked down on PEDs. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden as a part of your routine, it's just how you got to where where you are. The fact of the matter is you get bigger and stronger doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a better baseball player. Like it's, it's not weightlifting. Basically it's not going to help you lift more weights. Maybe you can hit a ball a little bit further, but that's the point. You still have to time the ball. You still have to, to get your foot down and and be an elite hitter and like to be able to do that. So the problem I have with it is like Barry Bonds, clearly a PD user, um, but also one of the best hitters of all time. Okay. The, the way he was able to time up pitches, his on-base percentage was out of control. Like pitchers didn't want to throw to him. But if they had said, like, I'll ask you this. If they said to the Major League Baseball players, everybody's allowed to use PEDs. Do you think that's ethical? Like, do you think that's fair? If everybody is? Yeah. Then, you know, maybe. If everybody is. The, the well, pro- what do you think? The, the problem with that question is, is then then people will feel like they have to do it and when they don't want to. Well, exactly. Because it, it's get, yeah. Exactly. You're going to want to survive. Yeah. You, you'll be out of the league the next week. Exactly. So, w- which is fair. And I actually do like that they crack down on PEDs. But the guys that use them, like the Barry Bonds, um, Roger Clemens got convicted of it, all these guys, I still think they should be in the Hall of Fame because that was the times that it happened in. Mm-hmm. Um, they start When they started their careers, it was before anyone was... Like everyone was just turning a blind eye to it. Mm-hmm. It'd be like now if the majors were like, okay, no banned substances for pitchers. Like nobody's allowed to use pine tar, Vaseline, um, or the rosin bag, which has already been a rule that that's you know saying you're not supposed to, but they turn a blind eye to. What's that? What's that? The rosin bag? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a bag on the back of the mound that they basically chalk and they hit on their fingers and it creates this like substance where it's really sticky if you combine it with water. That's legal. That's legal. But using Vaseline or using pine tars is basically in the rules. It says you can't, but no one is going to, no one is going to like actively look for it on your body every time that you're going out there and they can't really test for it. So if, if you're really obvious with it, then you'll get thrown out of the game like Pineda was. Um, But it'd be like them saying anyone that used that is not allowed in the hall of fame. Meanwhile, every other pitcher was doing it or, or, you know, the vast majority of pitchers were doing it. And it was just allowed because like the majors like high strikeout rates. They like big home runs. So these hitters might have felt like pressured into doing it basically. Like I need to do this to make a living. I need to do this to make massive amounts of money. So basically we don't want steroids because we want to keep the playing field quote unquote equal, which yeah. is never equal by the way. And so, <laughs> but but if we, but if everybody was on the juice, yeah. then it would be like also equal, but on a, on a, like a, Somewhat of a higher level. Yeah, it'd be like a but like a monster field, type of yeah. Type of team. But the playing field is still the same, but exactly. ex- except that everybody is juicing. Yeah. So what's the debate against having PED users in the Hall of Fame? Then it's just because it's unethical because they're cheating. It's, is that it? It's because there's there's a lot of uh, professional hitters that never used PEDs and gotten to certain levels without it. Like maybe they hit the same home run totals. Like I doubt Hank Aaron was ever on the juice or Babe Ruth. Like he clearly wasn't on it, but they hit such massive home run numbers. Um, so it's kind of unfair to like 
compare Hank Aaron because everybody loves to do that in sports to like Barry Bonds because Barry Bonds used juice. That's how he was able to do it. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, but Barry Bonds was seen 96 miles an hour every single game. So there are differences. Uh, But yeah, the the major thought is just being like, well, they did it when maybe like 50% of the other players in the league weren't doing it. So it it shouldn't be fair. So what was I going to say? So, okay. If everybody is, juicing and the product is better mm-hmm. because there's more home runs do you think they should bring it back I, that would not fly in today it's just because of like the long-term health like repercussions yeah. from using peds that's why it wouldn't fly but if they could figure out a way to make these guys stronger without you know negatively hurting them and they already do that with they've improved bat technology and strength and conditioning yeah strength and conditioning and all that on. stuff but if they could just give them like, here, take this pill. It's never going to hurt you in the long run. Everybody's doing it and you're just going to be massive and be able to hit really well. Mm-hmm. Then you'd have an even playing field again. Everybody wins. Majors wins. The fans win. The players win because they get to hit crazy numbers. So, okay. I know you're not a historian on MLB, but like when did they start really cracking down on steroids? Uh, there was, I, I want to say like the 80s or 90s was when it was a really big crackdown. The I, mid 90s, I would say is, is about when it was. And that was when there was huge home run totals, like massive. Like mm. it, it was, uh, and people were like, hmm. yeah, like 75 home runs in a season. Like what? <laughs> <laughs> like, how, is, how is that possible? Yeah. And then everybody's kind of looking at this guy. He's like, okay, he's 250, like solid muscle, like veiny as all hell. Mm. And he's hitting these huge home runs. There's got to be something else. Like you can't naturally get that big. Mm-hmm. Or like Barry Bonds, I think his head size increased like. Like maybe he was like a seven and one eighth head size and he increased to like seven, three, mm-hmm. fours or something. So everyone's like, that's not natural basically yeah. what you're doing. That's uh, but, but yeah, I think it was, I think it was like the mid nineties, late nineties. Um, and then early two thousands, a ton of guys got busted. Hmm. Yeah. So when you were playing in the NAIA mm-hmm. and I don't want you to like get in trouble or anything, oh, but, no, but like how was the, was the juice like prevalent in the, in the, in the league? Yeah, it's, it's definitely prevalent. Um, but the problem is like there is testing in, in the NAIA as well. Um, so like I got, I got uh, drug tested twice uh-huh. and it's not like, cause I was like hitting like crazy home run numbers or yeah. like I'm naturally jacked or something. Yeah. I think they just knew that I wasn't because maybe my body stature or something like that. And it's kind of insulting. You're like, yeah, exactly. that it's like, what the hell? like <laughs> you know, I'm going to pass. Like, what the <laughs> um, but yeah, so I got it twice. So there's always that, um, if you get busted for it, I think it's 25% of your season, you get suspended the first time. And then I think it might be 50% or a full year ban if you get caught a second time. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's definitely prevalent. Like guys are using it guys are for, sure. for sure. Um, how is testing done in the MLB? Uh, it's, uh, it's a piss test usually. Uh, so I mean like how frequent, like where, anywhere, anytime? Yeah, it's completely random. They'll come up to you basically as you're walking down the stairs after a game. And they'll say to you, like, hey, man, can you come with me? You, like, we're with the MLB. You got to do a drug test. Um, and they'll do it right after a game. And that really didn't start until A-Rod got busted because he was using these gummies that he got from, like, a really uh, science-heavy lab. And uh, they are giving him these gummies. And he would text his trainer, hey, when, when can I take this? to pass the test basically. And he, when is it out of my system? Yeah. So he would take it at 9 a.m. And then if there was a 5 p.m. test, he'd pass it. No problem. But it would give you that boost for, for like a one o'clock game or something. What's in it? Do you know? 
I'm not sure the, the actual chemical compound of it um, or even what the name of the steroid is. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, they were just like these little like <laughs> Flintstones gummies or like, like a bag really? of gummies. Yeah, that he would take before a game. So everyone thinks of steroids as being like these needles or something that you're yeah, yeah, yeah. using in the bathroom. And it's way more high tech than that. Meanwhile, like, Arrow is walking in the locker room, just popping. Yeah, exactly. It's like, His team is like, yo, can I have some of those? Like, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I don't think you like these Skittles, yeah. man. <laughs> yeah, that's insane. Yeah, Ryan Braun, what he got busted for is rubbing cream on his forearms. It was a steroidal cream to oh, help. Oh, right. Because, yeah. Yeah, to help with like his arm strength. Some skin cream, creams do have that. Yeah, so it didn't necessarily make him stronger, but it just made him able to play 162 games. Well, it's the it's counters fatigue and uh, helps with recovery and all exactly, that. Exactly. Exactly. So Chad Mendez, a, a UFC fighter, he he was busted for steroids, and uh, I don't know if, if his story is true or not, but he has psoriasis. Oh yeah. And so the skin cream he's using has steroids in it. Oh. And so that's what he he got busted. For. Well, that's what he said he got busted for. Really? So did he say like, oh, I didn't know there were steroids in that. It's just something I've always used for my psoriasis. I think that's. What he said, because in, uh, in US, so UFC employs USADA to do it, US Anti-Doping Agency, mm -hmm. and they test you any time of the day, whenever they want, right. as many times as they want. They come to your house, you're, you're, you're taking a dump, they don't care, they'll walk in. <laughs> they're like scooping the cup yeah, right yeah, in they're there. Like, hold on, hold on, hold on, let me get this one <laughs> So, but you're allowed to notify USADA like, of any, su any substance or any supplement you're using. Okay. Tell them like, hey, this is what I'm taking it for. Uh, I'll send you a sample, test it, so that you know when you when you test me and you see this, you're not uh, you don't suspend. Me. Oh, I see. So the athletes have to be proactive for anything. That they have to be proactive. They have to they have to tell the USADA like everything they're taking, every supplement they're taking. Right. Um. I mean, if they don't want to get busted, you cannot do it and then get in shit later. Right. It's on you. You have to update your whereabouts all the time. Uh. Every every couple months, you have to like go on the app and tell them like, hey, I'm gonna be. Uh, and this city at this time, and then I'm going to go there and I'm oh, going to okay. be here. So it's, you know, it's a hassle, but, um, how do you think there's a lot of juicing going on in MLB today? Uh, I think they've done actually a pretty good job of cleaning it up, of really cleaning it up. Um, like the last guy that got a major suspension, uh, was Cano this year and, uh, D Gordon last year. So that's how you can kind of tell that steroids have shifted from more so like massive muscle gains and, and allowing you to be able to work out more often mm -hmm. um, to more so like recovery because like D Gordon's like 150 pounds, like soaking wet and Robbie Cano is, I think he's like 185 or 190. Mm -hmm. So he's not like these huge guys, um, but they've had to really adjust their testing protocols for way more compounds because as as the testing gets better so do the people producing the drugs and, and the big pharma companies able to produce these things that you know can circumvent the system yeah and also using our iv bags allowed in the that's a good i'm actually not sure um i i would imagine that they are like i can't they wouldn't have a big problem with like rehydration i'm sure in mma and boxing it would be a huge problem it's illegal yeah um but baseball i i I can't imagine they would crack down on that. Because I think uh, Lance Armstrong was using IV bags to mask his... Uh, oh, his is that what he was, he was using? Oh, yeah. really? And in the UFC, they used to do that too. Now they're illegal. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, don't, I don't know if there's specifically any rule, um, but if there is, it would be fairly new. Mm -hmm. Well, that actually ties back into the weight cutting we're talking about. Because back when it was at 8 p.m., um, not only were steroids not tested for but also you, you're able to use iv bags so if you're cutting weight up to up to 24 hours before the fight yeah. you can just pop an iv in and you'll be hydrated and you'll right. be fine now you can't do that 
Yeah, so th- these guys are going into the fight dehydrated, like not even close to prepared then, if it's at 8 p.m., right? The, I mean, the- they blow up, obviously. Like, let's say you're fighting at what, 150? Yeah. By the time you step in the octagon, you're probably like 160 to 165. Okay. Depending on how big they are. Uh, so they do blow up, blow up. They do rehydrate. But how much do they really rehydrate? Right. Probably not enough. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, so and, they're going and at what drink. point do you like swing the pendulum too much? It's like, okay, you you drank too much water now or you're too bloated. You're too slow. Right. Like it, right. So maybe that's a thing. That's thing crazy. Too. Okay. The next uh, Tony's questions also <laughs> comes from Sean. Um so he says, how goat status is Shohi? Okay. Like uh, Shohi, it. what's his name? Seth? Shohei Otani? Shohei Otani, yeah. Yep. Um, for pitching and hitting at the highest level. And for people who are over 16 years old and don't know what <laughs> goat status means, it's like, how great is he? Yeah, how the great greatest of guy? all time. Like, how, how does he compare to the greatest of all time? How yeah. goat status? Maybe not already goat, but like, how goat status? Yeah. <laughs> uh, he's... he's Okay, on a scale of of one to goat status, he's mm-hmm. probably like a. How many letters of the of goat does he have? Um, let's say let's say there's ten, mm-hmm. uh, of of goat status. Yeah, he'd probably be like right now, a seven point five. What isn't he twenty three? He's he's twenty four maybe twenty three or twenty four. He's yeah. already at seven point five. He's already at seven point five because he can throw a hundred. There's like. There's like 15 guys in the league that can do that right now. And then he can just hit bombs like from the left side of the plate, which is super impressive. Mm-hmm. Or no, he's a righty. Sorry, he's a righty. Um, but for him to be able to come in and already hit home runs off of major league pitching, coming he came over from uh, Japan. Um, for him to be able to hit the pitching and to pitch the way that he has, if he can prevent injuries, he's 100% GOAT status. So let's let's explain this a bit to, for people who don't know much sure. about him. Yeah, yeah. So he's a uh, young Japanese kid. He yeah. comes in the league and he hits and he pitches. Yeah, which is unheard of since Babe Ruth, right? Exactly. Yeah, they call him Japanese Babe Ruth. That's his like nickname. So nobody has done this since Babe Ruth, which is in you know a couple of decades. I don't know how long Babe Ruth. Yeah. Did. Yeah. So um, do you think that's sustainable? Do you think he can keep this up throughout his MLB career? I think I think at some point he's going to have to pick. He's going to. And they'll probably really try to turn him towards the pitching side. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing is, if if you if you make him pick pitching, and for yeah. some reason he gets injured, like overuse, hurts his labrum or something like that, what's to say he can't just restructure himself and still be an elite hitter for that team? Correct. So I was actually surprised. So in baseball, there's the American League and the National League. Mm-hmm. In the National League, the pitchers hit. They're, they're forced to hit. In the American League, you get a designated hitter for the pitcher. I was surprised. Wait, he wait, wait, hold on. Hold yeah. On. So in the MLB, MLB is split into two two leagues, and there's two sets of rules: National and American. Yeah. And one of them, pitchers are supposed to hit. Yeah, the National League pitchers have to hit. They're usually the ninth hitter in the lineup. And okay. then in the American League, you get a designated hitter. You get some like 300 pound dude that can just crush balls, and he hits in the pitcher's spot. Why not just unify the rules? that's that's another good question i don't know why the majors have never done that but there's a lot of pushback from which rules do we pick uh-huh so if we pick letting the pitcher hit all the time then the strikeout rates are going to go through the roof because traditionally pitchers are like horrible hitters and that's why otani is such a standout because he can hit just like any other major league hitter right. even better than a lot of them um so if we do that we're going to increase this, this strikeouts but then if we implement a designated hitter then we're going to have more home runs and possibly uh, a slower game because then we're going to use more relievers 
to face like specific hitters mm-hmm. and matchups and it really slows down the game mm-hmm. so the majors are really split on their decision on that traditionally like national league games i think go a little bit quicker like they go through them quicker okay but american league games like there's a lot more home runs maybe a little bit more fun to watch what other differences are there between uh national league and american league that's uh that's pretty much it is the designated hitter there's also like a double switch so you can put like a pitcher in left field and then he can he can come in and hit and then go into pitch like it's this really weird rule mm-hmm. um so you can kind of navigate the rules that way but that is like the major difference okay so um why obviously shohei is is an anomaly right and so yeah. is babe ruth and i wouldn't expect many people to be like them right but why do we not see more more of those cases I, it, it could be something where it's not like, necessarily on their level but like you know somewhat comparable so i i think i think it could be something like traditionally coaches have forced you to pick like when you go to college a big thing going to play at like a, a college team in baseball is everybody says they can pitch and hit and then the coach will be like i don't know no one really does that like you should be a pitcher or your skills are more tailored to a pitcher or your skills are more skills are more tailored to a hitter right maybe now that they're seeing someone successfully do it in the majors it's going to cascade down into definitely in japan there's going to everybody's going to be wanting to be doing that like he has like this crazy following but here you might start to see it as well so it, it started to happen with ambidextrous pitchers so they can throw with their right arm and their left arm, arm yeah. um but the rates of those people in minor league just from seeing a major leaguer do it it, mm-hmm. it goes into the minor league system and and all the way down to youth baseball and then kids at four years old are trying to do it um so uh, yeah i i think i think that will have an effect on it but why why it hasn't happened like why shohei is such an anomaly is because coaches have kind of really forced you to pick one way or the other mm-hmm. it's, it's not on the coaches it's just a matter of of getting the best value out of your players right because your job as a coach is to maximize uh, the abilities of, of your player yeah so and, and and you don't want your guy getting hurt like if he throws 100 pitches and then is expected to go out and hit it is a strain on your shoulder and your body like maybe you got to run and slide and, and, and do these things and yeah. if you slide on your right thumb or something then you can't pitch for right you know a couple months so yeah there's a balance there does he hit in the same games that he pitches so the day before he pitches he has a day off the day he pitches he doesn't hit i don't think actually actually no he probably does he does hit um when he pitch. so you in the american league you can choose to have a dh you don't have to almost yeah. every team does but they don't mm-hmm. and then the day after he pitches he doesn't hit so every five days you pitch in the majors so three days he's hitting or two days he's hitting and then three days are geared for him pitching so you you in the al you get uh you get the opportunity to choose whether you want to have a dh or not but they don't so they don't have like a so they don't have to employ someone yeah you you don't have to um yeah. it's just a bad choice usually because the pitchers aren't great hitters right okay makes sense um yeah i wonder if he's gonna keep this up throughout his career that would be amazing to see i hope so i mean he's the knock on him is he's, he's kind of has a little bit of an injury history like right now he has a blister on his middle finger and it's kind of pushed him back a couple starts mm. um but he's had some arm issues and, and stuff so it, it is kind of a risk but uh i really hope he can keep it up because is this his first season it's his first season yeah and it, it's great for baseball like he the angels games have been unbelievable sold mm-hmm. out with like he has like a whole section of japanese fans going just to watch him why uh why is baseball big in japan where did it originate from isn't it an american sport it it is an american sport um but they've been really good at baseball for a long time i, I don't really know that 
too much of the history over there. Mm-hmm. But the Korean League, I've been told, like people that go to those games, like it's a whole nother world. It's like going to see Premier League soccer. Yeah. Like completely different. Well, I've seen videos with like banners and flags and yeah. people putting <laughs> their mind. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's great. In, in like their all-star game, they have this, this competition or I've seen a video of it where they like the pitcher throws the ball and then the smoke screen goes up oh. and then you try to have to hit a home run as the ball comes through the smoke. Like it's so, Dude. it's so crazy, but it looks really interesting. That's so over the top. That's amazing. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Um, actually my next question, this ties in great with my next question. Um, why, why do you think baseball's popularity is declining? Is it because our millennial brains are just, they need like quick stimulation all the time and baseball is kind of slow? Yeah. I think, I think it's, that's really slow, boring game. Like I, I'm really interested in it. I know all the nuances. So that's what I'm watching when I'm watching the game. But if you don't know what's going on, it takes a long time to learn like some of those subtle nuances that you wouldn't know. So it would be really boring. It, it makes sense that that's why it's declining. That's why the, the majors are having a tough time. Should we try to make the game shorter? Like should we, should we make it happen faster? So mm-hmm. people are more engaged or should we make it longer and have these guys hit more home runs? To make people because people get excited for home runs. Yeah. So okay. Um, if you were the president of MLB for one day, yeah, what would you change about MLB to make it more exciting? To make it more exciting, I think you need more, um, more international access. So maybe you start thinking about having a, a few teams in Japan or in Korea or something like that. Think of like an expansion team over there. I know it's a scheduling mess. But even just having those teams rooted there, like maybe they play for a month in Japan and like teams come over and they'll, they'll stay there for like six weeks or something like that and play a bunch of games. Mm-hmm. And then when they fly back, like those people in Japan and Korea are going to be really engaged with all their teams mm-hmm. and it kind of, you would disperse more towards like the global side of things because it's an American game. Even in Canada, we don't watch that much baseball compared to the States. Um, so I think they really need to, to globally go out and do that. I think you could do that with an expansion team. I also would um, stop using like a, a lot of the, so baseball is really traditional fans. They like the old rules. They like, you know, no replay. Like they, they like the certain amount of times in between okay. innings. I would keep a lot of those rules because you want to keep those fans. You don't want them to be like, yeah, you know, yeah. baseball's not even the same game anymore. I'm going to switch to football or, you know, I'm just going to stop watching it. And then, um, yeah, I guess they have to figure out a way to keep their hitters on par with the pitchers because the pitchers are really starting to pull away from the hitters. They are dominating them. I think pitchers are advancing faster than hitters. Yeah. I think, I think April was one of the highest strikeout months ever in baseball. And it goes back to like 1880 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's more teams and more players now, but it's, it's really starting to, to slow the game down and you're getting, not the gap as many, is getting bigger. Yeah. High scoring games. Mm-hmm. I guess you could also, what, what I like they used to do is uh the all-star game used to dictate who gets home field and during, during the world series. Okay. So if the American league wins, then they get a home field advantage, which in baseball makes a big difference because then you get a designated hitter for four games. Oh yeah. It's because the rules are wherever, whatever park you're playing in. So if an American league team goes to the national league and plays against a national mm-hmm. league team, they have to play the NL rules yeah. and vice versa. So that's a huge difference in the World Series. If you have a really good designated hitter and your all-star team wins the, the all-star game, then you get home field advantage and you get to use that hitter. They took that rule away last year and the viewership went way down. Like, cause the, the guys don't care. It became like, like the NBA all-star game where guys are just like throwing up blobs and no one really watches it. It becomes mm-hmm. kind of a mockery. 
So I would bring that back too. Would you bring the Expos back or do you think there's no market? I I don't know. I I think Canadian baseball has has been growing. Like we we've gotten a lot better at baseball. We have a lot more guys in the majors than we ever have, mm-hmm. even in the minors. So it would be nice to to branch out to one of those markets or maybe even a western team like in BC Vancouver? or in Alberta or yeah. something like that. It'd be nice to have more Canadian teams. Um, because yeah, that would make the market a little more global. And I think that would bring up definitely viewership and, mm-hmm. and get more fans engaged. I wonder if there's any market in Alberta though, or like, you know, it, it might be hard. Um, maybe Vancouver would be more. Yeah. But there, there's like a Western major baseball league. It's, it's similar to the league that I play in, except okay. it's just for college players. Mm-hmm. Um, and they get fans like in Okotoks and they, they get a lot of people like loyal fans coming out to the games. So if you have major leaguers showing up, then you might be able to draw from that local community. But yeah, you're right. The population might not be there to support it. So, okay, do you think if, if the MLB keeps this trajectory up in terms of like declining popularity and ratings and all that, like what's the future of the... Yeah, it's... Uh, it's I think it, I think it's always going to be a game where like traditionalists are, are, are going to be engaged in it and, and, and stick around with it. So it seems like a game, like the traditional game where, where like a dad watches it with his son and then his son like begins to love baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, so you'll still have those fans. But if the viewership continues to decline, then you're going to have less big contracts and guys aren't going to pick like, okay, I'm going to go to the majors because that's where I'm going to make the most money. I'm just going to go play football because I love football and I can make good money and mm-hmm. have so many fans. Um, but say, say it continues on this trajectory. I guess yeah. You yeah, at some point it would fizzle out. Like it, you never know what the future of a sport is going to be. So be. sad, and, yeah. I, and I'm <laughs> not even a baseball fan. That'd be so yeah. sad. Yeah, um, and it's not like it's it's not like it's code red. Like they're on like life support right now. They still have a ton of right. loyal fans and, and, and a big fan base. Um, but there's definitely issues they need to address. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, if if they implement a couple changes and some of the ones you mentioned too, because baseball has the most monstrous contracts right now right oh yeah uh stanton's was 10 years 325 million right like yeah. that's absolutely <laughs> bonkers yeah. yeah so what's gonna happen to those contracts when when the ratings keep going down when the popularity keeps going down when ticket sales aren't there right so the yankees won't be able to afford to, to hand out these massive contracts to certain players and yeah there will be less money to go around in the sport honestly i think the same thing about uh football with with the more cte research and oh, all yeah. that yeah I mean, football definitely hasn't shown signs of decreasing popularity. That's yeah, for sure. Viewership is way down in the NFL. And oh wait, it has. Yeah, it, it's it's been going down. People blame it on like politics and and uh, oh, that's true. And, and all that stuff. Um, but I I definitely blame the health side of uh, of it, like of the NFL. Like the these players, like like we were saying earlier, you can only be like thirty and be a running back in the NFL. At some point, your body just breaks down. Mm-hmm. But the mental side, like your life after football is just so poor because, you know, right. you take such insane damage. Mm-hmm. So it takes a really, you know, special type of athlete that they have to really love the game to want to go into it. And they have those players. But um, yeah, if, if, if they if they don't figure out a technology to protect their players a little bit more, then they're, they're going to have a similar issue. That's what I keep thinking about, about sports like uh, football and MMA and even hockey. You know, the more research that's been done on CTE and the dangers, the more parents are going to be less likely to enroll their kids in those sports. And yeah, yeah, that, that already you, happens you with think, football. Yeah. You know, like a, like 
in youth sports, people will be, you know, kind of forcing them to go away from football, like play these sports because look at these guys that are 25 years old and they, you know, mm-hmm. have brain damage. Like right. it, parents will definitely start to steer them away from that. Yeah. Like you're, by the time you're 30, you're, you're starting to see those signs probably because, or maybe earlier because yeah. you hear a lot of cases from the NFL and how young guys and like what they're doing, how they're living their lives. Exactly. And uh, there, there was that study, I think uh, this year or last year, where they had, I think it was 102 deceased NFL, like former players, and like 99 of them they found CTE in. The study, it was a little bit biased because like the families were already wondering if that was a case and like why they died. Like they thought that they right, are, right. might have already had CTE. That's still a crazy number though. That's like, insane. Yeah, like it's 99 a, out of something you, you, yeah. can't, you can't turn your, turn your head to. And what I've seen lately is that they're starting to track CTE while you're alive. So in in the living brain, uh, I think it's probably like in the beginning stages of, of, of monitoring, but that would still be helpful. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the technology, like, um, even on the medical side of things like MRI, um, the new CTs that they have, they, the more and more, uh, high quality and high definition that those scans become, then the more we can diagnose those things and see when they're developing earlier yeah so if if we get a guy that has a huge hit and then we use this like brand new mri machine and and we Mm -hmm. they they, you know researchers can figure out where it is like the developing signs of it it's like listen man you you, like i'm sorry to tell you but if you keep doing this this is what could happen to your brain this is what could happen for the rest Mm -hmm. of your life and give them that choice as opposed to being like you know here follow my finger oh you're not concussed like keep keep playing protocol yeah yeah that's crazy. Well, this man, this this podcast actually got me so excited about baseball. <laughs> I'd be done to go to a Jays game soon or something. I for don't know. sure, yeah. yeah. We, we should get. Uh, we should get. So, what does Tony question stand for? Is your, is it your buddy Tony or uh, well, uh, like the Tony Awards? They or? call themselves the Tonys. <laughs> I don't know why. It's a long story, man. <laughs> <laughs> so I was gonna say we should we should get the Tony group out. We'll go to a. Oh, we'll I'm down to, to get Jay's the Tonys game. going. <laughs> yeah, get all the boys and go to a Jays game or something. For sure, that would be awesome. Man. I went once actually. And I don't remember anything. It was my buddy's birthday and we were just drinking and I was kind of, I was just hammered by like halfway in and right. I don't remember anything, but it's definitely a good time. Oh and yeah. Baseball has that like, has that vibe that's different from other sports. I think it's because it's a bit slower. So you focus more on like the, the group that you're with and, and the beers and yeah, it, 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 like chance and exactly. And, and you go to a Jays game and you sit in the 500 level. It's yeah, like yeah. a sense of community. Everyone up there is like you know pretty broke and like yeah, 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 they're yeah. just trying to drink like expensive beers get hammered and no one might not be no like know what's going on with the game but then all of a yeah. sudden the guy hits a home run and everyone's like, like super uh, excited yeah and granted 90 percent of them are half in the bag before they show up to the game anyway you kind of have to be it's like a, you train. gotta prime yourself for it yeah, so. yeah. that's awesome man. i can't thank you enough for doing this this has been great man yeah man thanks for having me on i, re- after, I really enjoyed it after you've done the the project we can uh, we can see what happens for sure. Yeah, I'll let you know the results. We can write a book about that. I'm into it for sure. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, buddy.